Morning, everyone. Please excuse my voice. I'm battling asthma at the moment, and it's a toss-up between <coughs> taking enough of the Ventolin and losing my voice, or not taking enough and being a bit out of breath. So we'll see how we go. This morning, we continue our journey with Jesus on the pathway to spiritual formation. And uh, the Beatitudes are our roadmap, and we continue along that that road. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Sounds pretty straightforward, this one. But I can tell you, as some of the best-fed people on this planet, we have quite a limited appreciation for what Jesus was getting at here. Hunger, for us, is when the pasta waffles on a little bit too long and morning tea or lunch is delayed 15 minutes. Hunger is when a meeting runs over time and we have to have lunch later than usual. Hunger is what makes us pull over at the nearest drive-through or takeaway for a quick snack, even though we've only been on the road a couple of hours. Our fridges are full, the shops are always nearby, and we have a plethora of options available to us. And our waistlines give testimony to the fact that most of us have never really known true hunger, and nor probably will we ever know what true hunger is. Likewise with thirst, we have become the water bottle generation. Years ago, you would have been laughed at for venturing out of the house with a water bottle in your handbag. Water bottles were for mountain climbers or bushwalkers or serious sports people. These days, many of us won't leave home without a water bottle. We need it on hand to, to quench any little pang of thirst that we might have. We have next to no idea what it means to be truly hungry or thirsty simply because most of us have just never experienced it, nor are we likely ever to experience it. A life without refrigerators or supermarkets or fast food, even running water, is simply a long way outside of our privileged reality. Have you ever been seriously dehydrated? I can remember one occasion that I could point to where I would say that I was seriously dehydrated. Early in my working life, I was working as a research assistant for a company that produces seeds. And I was assisting with assessing their summer variety trials. The work was outdoors and it was all weather and it basically involved walking up and down row upon row upon row of fields and looking at the varieties that were in the ground and assessing them for when they started producing their fruit, when they finished, how much they produced, and sometimes there was taste tests and things involved. I'd come prepared for the day. It was a stinking hot day, so I'd come prepared with my big water bottle. We were going to be on our feet most of the day, and much of it would be spent bending over. By 9 o'clock, I had drained my big water bottle. By midday, I had a developing headache. I could think of little else but water, and we were miles from nowhere. 
By three o'clock, my head was throbbing and I was feeling lightheaded every time I stood up from the bending position. And I don't remember much beyond that. I'm told that I started staggering and the words that I was saying made little sense. Fortunately, I was working with an old hand who recognised pretty quickly what was going on and got me what I needed, shade and water. On that day, I learned what it means to thirst. And I learned that you also take one of those great big blue things with a cup on top every time you're going out in the field. I had said the words before plenty of times, I'm thirsty, but I'd never really been thirsty until that day, until that day when you can think of nothing else but how you're going to get water. On those sort of occasions, the difference between getting water and not getting water is the difference between becoming seriously ill and being healthy. It can be the difference between life and death for some people. And when Jesus talks about hunger and thirst, it is not our wiggling, niggling Western feeling that he's talking about when we haven't eaten or drunk for half an hour. It's not that first rumble of the stomach, but it is that deep growl of our longing to be filled. In 1972, a Uruguayan charter flight took off carrying 45 passengers and crew, including a rugby team and many of their family members, and it crashed in the Andes. Many of you will be familiar with the story. It made big news. 11 people died instantly. Others perished shortly after from the injuries that they'd sustained from the crash from an avalanche, which happened a little while later on, or just from the extreme cold that they had to put up with. The surviving passengers between them had eight chocolate bars, one tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, and a few dates, dried plums and lollies. And they had a couple of bottles of wine. It was 72 days before they were finally rescued, having ultimately resorted to what would otherwise be unthinkable, the eating of the flesh of their dead companions. Such was their desperate hunger. These people knew what it meant to really hunger, to earnestly desire, to famish, which is, is the root of the word that's used all on board that flight were Catholic. Some of them agonised nearly to the point of their own death over what they would have to do to save their lives. And I can't imagine that any of them could now read this beatitude in the same way that we who have never experienced real hunger do. They had experienced profound, protracted hunger. I think it would change the way they see this beatitude. In the society in which we live, hunger and thirst are to be avoided at all costs. The fast food and the processed food industries depend on the prevailing view of hunger being negative. It is something that you must get rid of as soon as it comes upon you. And this belies the fact that there is much that is positive about hunger and thirst. And seeing beyond some of these negatives can help us to understand perhaps why 
Jesus links blessing instead of weakness with these verbs, hunger and thirst. Firstly, <coughs> hunger and thirst are signs of life. A newborn infant is placed on the mother's breast and immediately begins to feed. All who are present at the birth heave a sigh of relief because the ordeal of the birth is over, the mother is well, and because the baby's feeding, it is a sign that all is well with that child. The infant doesn't sit back and consider, am I hungry? Am I thirsty? It just is because it's alive and hunger and thirst are signs of life. The infant that is not hungry or thirsty after birth needs urgent medical attention. To be hungry and thirsty for righteousness is to be spiritually alive. And the Christian that does not hunger and thirst for righteousness is likewise in urgent need of spiritual attention. Hunger and thirst are also signs of good health. When our children become ill, mostly it's not a cause for concern. Kids get sick all the time. When my kids were preschoolers in daycare, they had perpetually runny noses. Lisa will know all about it. Kids in daycare catch things off one another. It's what they do. No one batted an eyelid. It was normal, at least for a year or so until their immune systems were supercharged and they didn't catch anything anymore. And I feel a bit sorry for working parents these days because a runny nose is considered a symptom of COVID and you need to come and pick up your child. And I know a lot of parents struggle with this now because they're constantly picking up their kids from daycare and it's very difficult. In the main though, as long as our kids are eating and drinking, we parents don't worry too much. When they lose their appetite or when we can't get fluids into them, that's when we start to get concerned because that is a sign that there is something more serious going on than just the everyday sniffle. If you are longing to be formed more and more into the image of Christ, if your spiritual appetite is good, chances are so too will be your spiritual health. If you have no appetite for the things of God, or perhaps you've lost the appetite that you might have once had, then it's time to get concerned because that is a sign that there is something going on there. You need a spiritual checkup because hunger and thirst are signs of good health. Hunger and thirst are also powerful motivating forces. If we return to our example of the plane crash in the Andes, after more than two months at the crash site, two men, Nando Parado and Roberto Canessa, scaled a 4,600-foot mountain, a metre mountain, even worse than foot, with no equipment, they had no training, they had no altitude training, they had very limited food, and they'd already lost almost half of their own body weight from the amount of time that they'd spent at the crash site with limited food. 
They then went on to hike a further 10 days over the mountains to get to the border with Chile, where eventually they, be, they came upon a Chilean mule driver who rode uh, for 10 hours to seek help for them. Hunger and thirst are powerful motivators. They drive us to do things that perhaps we would not otherwise be able to do to fulfill that deep hunger and thirst, that deep longing that we have. Genuine hunger and thirst drives human beings to great lengths to be filled. That, says Jesus, is how we should desire righteousness. Hunger and thirst are also signs that we are not yet full. Our bodies come with many inbuilt, ingenious feedback loops. When we eat, our stomachs become full and that sends a message to our brains to tell us to stop eating because we're already full and we don't need to eat anymore. If we're no longer hungry and thirsty in a spiritual sense, it is a sign that either we have no desire for righteousness or that what we think is righteousness is actually not righteousness at all. We're hungering after fake food. Those that have no desire for righteousness, they fill up on other things. They're happy with snacks and junk food, spiritual snacks and spiritual junk food. Parents and grandparents will know that many, many times we have to tell our kids that they can't have whatever snack it is that they want because it's not long until dinner time. And if you eat too much junk food and snacks before dinner, you'll lose your appetite for the real food. Even if there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the snacks that they want, they might want fruit or crackers or toast or something like that. But we know that it'll spoil their appetite and they won't want dinner. Those who hunger and thirst spiritually after snacks spend their lives snacking and chasing after ambition, position, material possession, influence, recreation, travel, experiences, entertainment, health, physical fitness, None of these things are intrinsically bad. There's nothing wrong with any of them. As long as you don't allow them to ruin your spiritual appetite. So long as they don't fill you up and replace that hunger and thirst for righteousness. So there are some people who are just not hungry because they're filling up on other things. But there are also those who think they are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, but what they're really getting is just a poor substitute because it is only self-righteousness. It's a bit like those classic food fails where the, what the product looks like on the packaging or in the recipe book, you know, those recipe book photos that we all see and then we try and make it ourselves and Turns out nothing like it. Or even on the menu board in a, in a takeaway place or a restaurant, it looks nothing like what you actually end up with. 
you think you've got this great easy meal coming to you that looks good and tastes delicious, but the end result is very substandard and certainly nothing like the real thing. It'll fill you up, but it's not as good as what you could have had. And that is the righteousness of the Pharisees. They were confident of their own righteousness. So confident were they, in fact, that they couldn't see that the righteousness that they were hungering and thirsting for bore next to no resemblance to the real thing. So one group, the snackers, are happy filling up on the wrong things, and the others think they're chasing after the right thing, if only they could see how far short of the real thing self-righteousness is. It is fake food, and it has no long-term spiritual nutritional value. But both groups share this one thing in common. They're full, at least in the short term, as long as they continue filling up on snacks and meals which are a poor imitation of the real thing. So what is the real thing? What is this righteousness that Jesus talks about? Well, if we look at the immediate context, we see righteousness as the key theme within the entire Sermon on the Mount. It appears twice in this opening section, which is the Beatitudes. We are blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we are blessed when we are persecuted because of righteousness. We'll come to that in a few weeks' time. But if we move on 10 verses, Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees considered themselves to be the full measure of righteousness. Theirs was to exemplify righteous living. They'd created endless laws, which they followed meticulously in their pursuit of righteousness. And they saw themselves as the enforcers of that on other people. So for Jesus to tell the average Jew that their righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees would have been in their minds akin to telling them that they were about to undertake mission impossible. And if they didn't think that surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees was mission impossible, I'm sure they would have been left in no doubt when Jesus went on to explain himself further, when he spells out the standards of his kingdom, when he equates murder with anger, when he equates adultery with lust, and so on and so on. As you read through chapter 5, the bar seems to get higher and higher within his kingdom. No one, not even the Pharisees, could hope to live up to that impossibly high standard. All of their rules and regulations were not going to get them there. The standard was far too high. The poor in spirit and the meek, they recognise this. They recognise that they can't get there on their own. Those who mourn, 
they mourn over sin and they long for restoration. They long to live in that right relationship with him. And they know that their own righteousness will not be sufficient. But they know that his will. And that is the, the point of the Sermon on the Mount. If we look to the wider biblical context, we can hear the words of the prophets. Prophet Jeremiah to Judah. God's people had repeatedly tried to establish a righteousness of their own. They had repeatedly turned their backs on the righteousness of God and their exile was imminent. But God speaks words of hope for their restoration through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this will be the name by which he will be called, Jehovah Sikenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Several weeks ago, when we spoke about mourning, we recalled that when Jesus began his ministry, he chose to quote from the prophet Isaiah. And I'll just remind you of the words that he used from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then we saw that as if he had continued with the rest of that quote from verses 2 and 3, he would have added the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Guess what, if he would have continued one further verse on in that prophecy from Isaiah. Continue on to finish off that verse, verse 3, and we read, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. When Jesus stood and he read from that Isaiah scroll, he began his ministry by explaining to his listeners that he himself would be the one to fulfill this prophecy. And he draws on all of that prophetic background here in his Beatitudes. As he whispers to those who knew their scripture, here I am, your comfort is near, the righteous branch is here. You will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord, a display of his splendour. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness then is to desire God. It is to desire Jesus Christ, our Jehovah Sikenu, who is the incarnation of the righteousness of God. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to long for right relationship with him. 
It is to long for Jeremiah's prophesied king, the king who would reign wisely, and it is to long for what is just and what is right to be done in the land. It is to earnestly desire the will of God and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Those that desire God in this way, says Jesus, they will be filled. So Jesus Christ, our Jehovah Sikenu, the Lord, our righteousness has come and he died on the cross for us. Our righteousness is in him. So does that mean we hunger and thirst no more? Is that what the Apostle Paul meant in Romans chapter 10, verses 3 to 4, when he said, since they, meaning Israel, did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end or the fulfilment of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Is that what the Apostle Paul meant? Jesus has come and now we're all righteous. Righteousness for everyone who believes is what the Apostle Paul said. Jesus died for me, I believe in him, so I share in his righteousness, right? Didn't Jesus himself say these words, whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become a spring of living water that wells up in him to eternal life. Did he not also say, I'm the bread of life? He who comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Did he not also say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So if I have drunk from the living water and tasted of the bread of life, I become one of those righteous oaks that Isaiah described as being for the display of God's splendor. Is that the end of the story? I've been filled and so I'm blessed. If that's the case, why did the same man, the Apostle Paul, who penned those words in Romans that Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, why did he also write to the Philippian church in Philippians 3.10, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering? Can you think of anyone who might have known Jesus better than the Apostle Paul? He met with Jesus on the road to Damascus at his conversion. He'd spoken with him in visions and he'd even experienced something that he himself found hard to put into words when he was translated into heaven where he heard what he calls inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. Can you think of anyone who would have known Jesus better than that? 
Can you think of anyone who knew better the power of his resurrection? He devoted his whole life to preaching about it and telling others about it. He'd written extensively about it. Can you think of anyone else who knew better the fellowship of his suffering? He'd been mocked numerous times, run out of many, many different towns. He'd been beaten and he'd been imprisoned. Can you think of anyone who knew better the sufferings of Jesus? If anyone knew Christ, the Apostle Paul did. His words to young Timothy ring true. I know whom I have believed. That's what he told Timothy. Yet paradoxically, he writes to the Philippian church, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Christianity is full of paradoxes. And most of them hang upon this one central great paradox of the kingdom. That the kingdom of God is now, but it is also not yet. Jesus has come and he's established his kingdom, but his reign has not yet been fully realised in the hearts of men. And if you look around, it is easy to see that what is just and what is right has not been fully realised in this land. And it won't be until he comes again and every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And so until then, we must live in a place of paradox. Paul knew the one who he had believed. Yet he would also not fully know Christ in this earthly life. And that is what he hungered for. He hungered for more. And so the question this morning for each one of us is, do we hunger for more? Or are we satisfied with that first decision that we made 25, 35, 40 years ago? Is that enough for us? Have we lost our appetite? Or are we still hungering for more? Are you driven each day to actively seek good food for your soul? Do you treasure and guard your time alone with God, pushing other things out of the way to make room for it? Or are you trying to squeeze it in amongst all the other snacks that you're consuming? Are you allowing your soul to eat well? Or are we filling up on snacks and fake food, things that only appear to satisfy, but are of actually very little nutritional value for the soul? Those who long for right relationship with God, who long for him to reign on earth and for what is just and right to be done in the land, those who earnestly desire his will to be done and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, those that desire righteousness in this way, says Jesus, they will be filled. They will be made righteous in Christ. But while they live in this place of paradox here on earth, 
they will always yearn for more. Those who are righteous in Christ long for righteousness. It is another of these paradoxes that hang off that great central paradox of the kingdom. They are filled, but they're still hungry. But it won't be that way forever. When the now but not yet of the kingdom becomes just the now, when that great multitude gathers around the throne, then all of the other paradoxes that hang off this one paradox will fade away. God's people will never be hungry or thirsty again. They will be blessed because they will be forever filled. This is how John describes that time in Revelation. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, who is Jesus. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the challenge for all of us is for us not to allow our desire for junk food to make us too full for the heavenly banquet. We must allow ourselves also not to be tricked into chasing after fake food that promises righteousness, but instead only delivers that self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That is the kind of food that we should desire as well. If we likewise earnestly to desire to do God's will and to participate in his ministry here on earth, if we are driven to pursue it like a hungry person seeks food or a thirsty person seeks water, if we can honestly say along with the psalmist, my soul thirsts for God, then we will be filled and we are blessed because Jesus has made us that promise and we can count on him to keep his promises. Join with me in prayer. Father God, 